0: Letter 2. Week 2 in Kandahar. Hello everyone. I'm writing from my bunk bed. We have moved up in the world, and now live in a B.A.T, which stands for Big Ass Tent. It's pretty cozy. There are about 200 people in each tent. There is also power, which is awesome. I haven't really had time to appreciate living inside a tent with power, though, because I have been so busy. Overall, the quality of life in KAF is improving daily. My crew is doing really well. Our morale is pretty high, and we are keeping very busy. It is an amazing feeling to get out and actually do our job. I knew that we were well-trained, but I didn't realize quite how well until we started actually doing road moves and patrols. I'm very confident in my crew and in our equipment. Don't worry, Dad. Confidence does not equal carelessness. We are very careful.
1: I'm Shannon Busta, and you're listening to For Her Country, a podcast produced by the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. Over the course of this series, we'll explore lessons in leadership from inspirational female leaders from across Canada's armed forces, all in honor of fallen Canadian military hero, Captain Nicola Goddard. The clip you just heard was from the second letter Nicola sent home while on deployment in Afghanistan. We'll be wrapping this episode with the remainder of her letter to give you a sense of what life can be like on deployment. And on today's show, we're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor. Eleanor recently completed a remarkable 25 year career as a regular force infantry officer. Over the course of that career, she completed multiple deployments overseas, including Kosovo and later Kandahar, where she led operations with soldiers from the Canadian, U.S., and Afghan armies. She now lives in Antigonish, Nova Scotia, with her two children, and runs a business focused on supporting the development of teams and leaders who thrive in adversity. And Eleanor is still involved with the military today as a reservist. And now, We want to take this opportunity to thank RBC for generously supporting this podcast series as presenting sponsor. RBC has been an advocate for true patriot love since 2010 and has committed over $1 million to support Canada's military members, veterans, and their families. Thank you, RBC. Eleanor, it's great to have you on the show today. I'd like to start off our conversation by asking you how exactly you found your way into a career in the military.
2: Right. So, I mean, I was a uh, 17-year-old who was looking for adventure. Every other person in my family had gone to Santa University, and my, my dad taught there, my mom had gone there, and I just wanted to do something different. And I just went to uh, to the guidance counselor's office and looked at the different schools that were out there and the RMC brochure caught my eye. And, uh, and then I took my very first trip to the recruiting center. I drove to Halifax, crossed the bridge all by myself for the very first time with three quarters and, uh, and made it to the recruiting center and the rest is history.
1: And when you got to the recruiting center, did you have a sense of what your element would be?
2: No idea. I mean, I had no idea what I wanted to do, except that I wanted it to be exciting. I knew I couldn't be in the Navy because I got I got seasick and I, I kind of wanted to be a pilot, but I had poor eyes. So I knew that that was not an option for me. So then then the recruiting officer gave me this like list of options. And what I thought was most interesting was the infantry. It sounded to be What I might be good at and what was most interesting to me. And at the time I really had no idea that there weren't uh, lots of other women doing that at the time and so that was kind of a happy coincidence because had I known I might I might have made another choice.
1: You know, you're not the first service member to mention that they may not have pursued the career they did had they actually been aware of how few other women were currently in the field. That naivety is part of what led them down a path to an incredible career. So you went to the recruiting center in 93 and you ultimately enrolled in 94. Can you walk us through your first impressions once you actually enrolled and how everything played out for you?
2: Yeah, so I was excited and nervous and... I think, you know, very predictable emotions for a 17-year-old at the time. My parents drove me to a bus station. I took a bus to the Halifax airport. I flew to BC where my basic training was. I mean, I was so nervous and so excited. And uh, to some extent, basic training was exactly what I was hoping for. You know, that was in a, a room of six other girls. And uh, I was in a platoon of 30 people and we did all sorts of you know physical activity and you know learned the rank system and learned all of that stuff. And I loved basic training. I just loved it. But when I was in basic training, people started to realize or, or ask me, you know what is my future trade? Basic training is for everybody. Everybody does the same basic training. And, and I you know told people that I was going into the infantry, I was going to be an infantry officer and Every time I said that, I got a response of, oh, oh, um, do you know what you're getting yourself in for? And I didn't. Uh, And then I started to become filled with self-doubt about whether or not this was the path I really wanted to take. It was an interesting kind of realization that came about quite slowly that it was not a, a commonly chosen path. And
1: for myself and all of the other civilians out there listening, can you explain the role the infantry
2: plays in the military? Right. So the, the infantry makes up uh, part of the combat arms. So uh, the combat arms are those soldiers that really sort of fight or operate on the ground closest to both the enemy and closest to the population. And so the infantry are the the ground soldiers. They they march, they have their rifles, but they're interacting both with the enemy in a very intimate way and with the civilian population in an intimate way. Other parts of the combat arms include the armored corps, which, you know, use armored vehicles, tanks, uh, the artillery that shoots big guns long distances, and the engineers that operate in support of all of uh, the ground forces.
1: So you're in basic training and you seem to love it. And I imagine that is not the case for everyone. Can you give us a sense of what they're putting you through? How hard is it? How common is it for people to fail?
2: Yeah. So if my recollection is, is correct, on our basic training, there was only a handful of people who might've failed. I would say less than five, probably more like three out of a platoon of 30 people. There was probably... About five people who just recognized that they were not suited for this kind of work or really missed home so much because it was their first time away from home in this starkly changed environment. Um, But when we got into infantry phase training, that failure rate really spiked. What exactly
1: does infantry phase training involve that leads to this spike in failure rates?
2: There's, There's deliberate sleep deprivation. There's deliberate... Um, like, in, placing you in environments where you are faced with, you know, what at that time in your life is enormous stress. Um, and there is forcing you to face situations where you can't really succeed in an unmitigated way, right? you're You're dealing with stress, chaos, ambiguity, things go wrong all around you, you know, most people are in their teens or early 20s, although there are some people who join later. um, And it's a highly stressful environment. You're also asked to learn uh, tactics and employ those tactics having never actually seen them. You You learn about them in the classroom, you get one demonstration of them, and then you get put in a tactical environment and you're expected to take those skills. And execute them and looking back of course i know you're not expected to execute them per- perfectly and that th- those maneuvers are just a vehicle by which they they assess your leadership but in, in at the time you don't know that you know you have this feeling that you've got to do it perfectly um and uh, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very stressful. A lot of people don't pass it and it's very rewarding when you finally get through it.
1: And I'm guessing based on your career that you, you did get through it.
2: I mean, I will say it, I didn't get through it seamlessly. I, I had a few bumps on the road and the most difficult phase, the most difficult infantry phase um, is the one where we learned to be an infantry platoon commander. And I failed that phase on the second last day. And it was kind of a devastating, public, humiliating blow for me. And I really thought maybe this is it, you know, maybe this is the end for me in this profession. But as I look back on it, I didn't fail for physical reasons because I was quite strong physically. And I didn't fail for tactical reasons because I, while I wasn't perfect, I had a good understanding of the tactics, I failed because I had not yet uh, developed the confidence that I needed to lead people under that kind of stress, and in particular to lead a group of almost all men. And I still was struggling with a perception that I shouldn't be as directive as the, uh, the infantry required me to be that it wasn't appropriate for me to be barking orders at people or to, to be as assertive as I needed to be. And I, and I struggled. I struggled finding my voice in that environment, in that leadership style, which wasn't intuitive to me. and And I failed and I failed for good reason. And then, you know, when I did, I kind of mustered up the courage to come back and try it again. And when I did it again, because I had done the whole course, I knew I knew what was going on. And so I was able to convey that knowledge to my peers, to help them gave me more confidence. I was able to finish that course on very strong footing, ultimately do very well on the next course, and and then go off to my first job in a battalion feeling confident and not like I had just passed, but that I had, you know, I had done very well. And that was in retrospect, probably the best thing that could have happened to me.
1: It's so great, Eleanor, to hear you recount this experience, which must have been really hard for you at the time, and for you to now see it as a positive learning experience. It sounds like you possessed a great deal of resilience at a pretty young age to have failed that portion of your training and to have not given up. I suspect that was not the last time you persevered in the face of failure. I'm hoping that you might be able to share another story with us or another example Of a time where you faced failure in life or in your career and then had to overcome it
2: yeah so when i um, when i got to battalion so that that's sort of my first job where i'm with my very first platoon and i was very anxious to do well and we were told almost immediately upon my arrival to the battalion that i was going to go as a platoon commander into kosovo and so we were doing what we call workup training uh, and I was with my team, and uh, we were doing various scenarios that might unfold in Kosovo. And one of them was a crowd confrontation scenario where an individual in the crowd pulls a weapon in a, in a way that doesn't represent an imminent threat. And uh, the training that we had received in Gagetown to get us to that point was not focused on operations other than war, peace support operations, peacekeeping operations, it was all war fighting operations. And so this was kind of new ground for me. And so I responded in a way that wasn't that wasn't perfect. I, I made I made some mistakes. I saw that weapon come out, I pulled my own weapon, I cocked it with a pistol. And uh, for anyone who knows about the Browning, if you don't have a magazine in the weapon, you pull the action to the rear, the action remains to the rear, which means that the gun looks funny. I was really trying to fix the gun, trying to respond to the situation. And overall, I didn't do a great job. It went went poorly for me. And after that scenario, as always happens, there was a a group debrief where, you know, it was made very clear that I could have done things differently. And I felt just terrible about the whole situation. I felt like I had failed in the eyes of my troops. I felt like I had lost their confidence. I was feeling very sorry for myself. And so uh, that evening I went to eat supper alone, which I never did. And I wanted to find a place where I could be alone to eat my supper. And I I went into the back of a light-skinned vehicle uh, that was dark. And I kind of like went back there with my meal and I was eating my meal. uh, And there was a light that was on the back end of the vehicle. So that I could see what was out there and I could sit in darkness. I was sitting there eating and then all of a sudden, one of my section commanders, so a senior non-commissioned officer who would have been about 10 years older than me, he came up uh, and stood at the back of the vehicle with a group of troops, so young privates and corporals, and they started reliving that scene of me, he started to pantomime it, um, and I was there watching it in horror, as as you know, this section commander who I I knew was a very charismatic person and carried a lot of weight in the platoon uh, was acting out with my like elevated voice, high pitched voice. And, and pantomiming the Browning with the action stuck to the rear. Uh, and I was just like sick to my stomach. And I, I w- just wanted to be swallowed up. And in that moment, I, I, I thought, I have only two options. I can either hide here and hope that nobody sees me come out of this truck. Or I can do something about this and, and challenge him on what clearly is on professionalism and kind of disloyalty <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I decided that I had to do something. And so I, I kind of mustered up the courage, I stood up, I went to the back of the vehicle and then I was bathed in the light myself and everybody saw me. It was like I was on a stage <laughs> and the troops were all like, oh, oh, and they all sort of disappeared. And, uh, and then I had a very uncomfortable conversation with this sergeant who, as I said, was very charismatic and, uh, a great, you know, funny guy, good leader. Um, but I said, you know, I know that I made some mistakes here and I have no problem if you bring them to me. Uh, but please never do that in front of our soldiers again. And, uh, the great part about this story is that he immediately recognized that he had done something that he shouldn't have and and he got it and and i was afraid that after that uh, event that he would you know turn on me in in another way or undermine me but the opposite happened he became kind of one of my greatest supporters and uh I'm so grateful because we then developed a professional friendship that lasted for 25 years. And he's one of the people that I respect more than anyone else in uniform and has given me more support than almost anyone else in uniform. He became one of my greatest defenders.
1: Eleanor, that is a pretty gut-wrenching story. Uh, I mean, kudos to you for handling it the way you did. What did you ultimately end up taking away from that experience in the long run?
2: Yeah so for me it was having the courage to do difficult things even when you know that the outcome might you know the, the outcome is uncertain and uh but it it's the right thing to do and and so what it what it did for me was it helped me recognize the importance of hard conversations and the importance of presenting people with you know with truth and it might have taken me longer to start to have those conversations with my senior leaders in my platoon if I hadn't been faced with such a clear, uh, opportunity. I'm Catherine Rusk. Captain Nicola Goddard was my sister and I'd like to make a request. Military service can bring great challenges and sacrifices. Women in particular can face unique issues. Help True Patriot Love and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund support Canada's service women, veteran women, and their families. True Patriot Love Foundation is a national organization that supports the military and veteran community by funding critical programs across the country. Please consider donating today towards their mission at tplgoddardfund.com. No donation is too small.
0: On behalf of my family and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, we thank you for your support.
1: Eleanor, I'm... I'm getting the sense that you have an innate tendency or drive to turn a bad situation into a positive one, or at least try to do so. I mean, we saw that first in base training and and later in Kosovo when when you quite literally refused to slink away into the darkness. (laughs) Now, I know in your career you've held a number of firsts, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to speak to us a bit about your experience in Afghanistan and what role you held there and, and how it all went for you.
2: Right so I was a company commander in Afghanistan so an infantry company commander and I had about um 150 soldiers that were in my company and then with attachments that came to to the the camp that I was responsible for in in Af- in southern Afghanistan Spurwangar um you know we would do conduct operations if you if you counted the the Af- Afghan army partners, the Afghan police partners, uh, and attachments from the remainder of our battle group, we would we would conduct operations of about three hundred people, and so um, that was a real honor for me to to hold that position and to be able to conduct those kinds of operations in Afghanistan. I mean, it was the pinnacle of my professional career, uh, and, uh, and and and. And I feel so grateful for the people that I had working for and with me uh, because, you know, it was their talents that enabled us to succeed uh, the way we, we did. Um, specifically, if you want to talk about my role as a, a woman commander in Afghanistan, yeah. Uh, so you know, when I w- was getting ready to go, I had some colleagues tell me like, it's not going to go well for you, Eleanor. The Pashtun people are, are just not going to respond to you. And, uh, you know, some of them said, as good as you may be, it's just not, you're just not going to be able to achieve the same effect. Uh, and so my team and I, we wargamed possible ways by which we could deal with that challenge. And one of the options that we wargamed gamed was i had a company second in command of named steve good um he had formerly been a warrant officer and then he became an officer so he was a little bit older than the average he was like six foot two red hair weathered face and we thought well you know maybe he can be my proxy if that needs to happen um because it's not about eleanor taylor it's about the effects we can achieve on the ground this this wasn't about trailblazing Uh, But two things happened. One is, in Afghanistan, uh, what I found was that the Afghan people, they saw all of us very much as foreigners. Like, they didn't see the North Americans who were in uniform as them. And so the men were not them, and the women were not them. We were all very foreign. And what they certainly understood was who holds power. Uh, And they were prepared to work with whoever held the power. You know, and uh, and so as long as it was clear to them that I held the power and it was, then I had no problems whatsoever interacting with the men. And, and in some cases, you know, I had men come to me and say, oh, well, we know that you're actually here for peace because you're a woman and women come with peace and men come to fight. And and while that, you know, was equally um stereotypical and not specifically true in my case, it was helpful in some cases. So I, I, I really found that my gender didn't act as an impediment to my success at all. Um, and I also had somebody say to me once that the whole concept of modeling in countries where there's not a lot of examples of women in different types of leadership roles is also powerful. And as part of what we as Canadians export is is sort of a different way of looking at the world. And I was inspired by that and, and kind of took that to heart as well.
1: And what was your experience with the coalition forces when you were in Afghanistan? Our US and British allies, for example, at the time they didn't permit women in combat roles, right?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because I think most people once they see it they kind of say oh right that can work and and that was my experience that had been my experience in you know kosovo and bosnia when i had worked with you know british and and american forces who didn't at that time have any women in their infantry you know i would hear them say things like oh that would never work you know back in in the states like that this just wouldn't work in our army and then after an operation is complete, they, they kind of say, you know what, you guys make that work. Like, like that worked much better than I expected it would. And and so most people just need to see it. They need to see that, you know, the, and, and the people who equally deserve the credit are, you know, the Canadians who form our, our army and air force and navy, who interact with their women leaders and men leaders as human beings. And they respond to them and they're not burdened by a like a great deal of uh, sexism that, that, that prevents us from working well together. So, so collectively we've got a great success story to tell here in Canada's army about how 30 years before our closest allies, we were sending women out on operations, leading operations, participating in operations. And, and while to some extent, I have trailblazed. There are a lot of trailblazers out there. You know, there are a lot of other women who served leading up to Afghanistan and in Afghanistan in very dangerous or trailblazing roles. So, you know, Canada, I'm so proud of what Canada has done uh, in the integration of women on operations.
1: Yes, I share that pride. And actually, the history of the progressive nature of the Canadian military is actually um It's been one of the best discoveries for me personally as we've produced this podcast, you know, having not known very much about the Canadian military beforehand. So I'd like to ask you if you have any advice you'd like to share with young women who might be considering entering the service and are looking to leave their mark.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say don't be afraid to love it. Like that there are so many wonderful opportunities out there. Uh, At 23 years old, I was leading troops uh, in Kosovo on operations. And at 17, if somebody had said that I was going to be doing that, I would have thought they were crazy. Um, But there I was. I got these enormous experiences at a very young age that then just turbocharged the development of my confidence and competence and leadership and all of that was gifted to me by the Army, like the training, the experiences, the operations, all of that. And, you know, if, if you want to develop as a leader, as a person, if you want exciting experiences, join the Army.
1: And before I let you go, I'm hoping that we can wrap up our conversation by discussing your recent transition from military life to civilian life and motherhood.
2: Yeah, so... Um, Uh, in 2010 after I returned from Afghanistan I had my first child I had a son and then two and a half years later I had a daughter and then and in that time between 2010 and 2015 you know we moved as a family I think three four times so when my son was four he was moving into his fourth house and so um I found the challenges associated with motherhood, balancing, being an infantry officer, an officer, a professional, really at all, uh, and motherhood really challenging because like most professionals who want to do well in their career, up until the time that I became a mother, I had invested so much of myself into my profession. And excellence was the only standard I would accept. And suddenly I was in this place where I couldn't be excellent anymore because I had so many other responsibilities. I couldn't stay late in the way that I used to. I couldn't be uh, as detailed as I used to be able to because I just had so many other things to do. And I found that period of my life to be one of the hardest because, you know, I often say that... When I was in Afghanistan as a company commander I was resourced we were had a clear objective we understood what we needed to do to achieve those objectives and everybody was behind me you know I had so much support and then I came back and and as a as a new mother although there were people there who wanted to support me right wasn't clear resources weren't clear i mean i i just felt myself uh, to be in a very difficult period and so that that transition also led me to a conclusion that i couldn't continue to i couldn't continue both to move and to give to the regular force in the way that i had in the past and so i i personally needed to make a change uh, to stabilize my life a little bit more, and made the decision to leave the regular force last July. And I'm uh, and now uh, in the reserve force and still greatly enjoy you know wearing the uniform and contributing, but now have changed the way I work and I've started my own business where I provide leadership training and resiliency training. Uh, and I've done some of that work with a company called Pathfinder Leadership Associates which is a company that was stood up by veterans who recognize that there are people out there in the civilian world who are really clamoring for leadership training and when they're given a taste of it are hungry for more. Like I I love talking about leadership and trust and resilience and the importance of it and how it changes through life. And we get to do that in the army all the time. Uh, But there are other venues where that kind of expertise is uh, is necessary. And people uh, people realize it or are realizing it. What
1: in your career positioned you so well to teach people about resilience?
2: Right. Well, I think for me, when I was uh, younger, uh, earlier in my career, I felt like I had this absolutely limitless pile of resilience. I just felt like I could bounce back from anything. Um, and, and I experienced that on operations. I felt like I, I was unaffected by anything. I was I was able to really rebound from anything and then I hit a stage in my career where I felt that resilience just erode to almost nothing and I kind of had to do some really hard and deliberate work to build it back up and now I have a recognition of the fragility of resilience you know that resilience is something that it's something that needs to be protected and it needs to be nurtured. And so I'm more deliberate about making sure that I keep myself healthy, that I sleep well, that I eat well. These are all very basic things and that I surround myself with you know, great people and positive positivity. And I think that's something that until you have experienced it, you can read about it, you can think you know about it, but you don't really know about it until you've been through it. And I was very lucky because I had a great upbringing and I didn't have any trauma that that eroded my resilience early. It just happened later in life. But but I feel that that coupled with my military experience and what I know about leadership, what I know about trust, uh, just puts me in a, a good spot to talk about it.
1: And finally, you've had such a successful career and life, and now you seem to be transitioning into a new phase of that life. Can you tell us a bit about how your view of success has changed as your life has changed?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, success is now in the moment, right? It's no longer about, you know, having achieved something. And I don't know that it ever really was, um, but but it's very much about the moments and, and finding a reward and happiness in every single day. And uh, I had a wonderful career. I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful that it's changed. I feel no regret about the transition that uh, I've, I've gone through. And, uh, you know, the regular force for me was about a certain stage in my life, which is now over. And I'm, I'm very excited about this next stage in my life. Um, and bringing value there.
1: Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been such an honor having you here, and thank you for sharing your story with us so candidly, both your successes and your failures.
2: Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for making it so easy and joyful.
1: This episode was sponsored by OMERS. OMERS has been a proud supporter of True Patriot Love since 2017, and we thank them for sponsoring today's episode. In the next episode of For Her Country, I'll be speaking with Warrant Officer Avril Jeannot-Baptiste-Jones. Joining the
2: military was the best decision I've ever made. I have accomplished so much. I am respected in my community, in the Black community and in the Caribbean community.
1: Avril was born and raised on the Caribbean island of Dominica, and after moving to Canada at a young age, made a life for herself in the military. Avril's career spans over 25 years, and she has held roles with a wide array of teams in communities across Canada, including CFB Kingston and the Canadian Forces Station in alert Nunavut. And before we end today's episode, as promised, here's an excerpt from the second half of Captain Nicola Goddard's second
0: letter home from Afghanistan. I find our trips out of the wire very tiring mentally. We are all keyed up and super alert for the whole thing, so we're all really tired when we get back. But it's great to get out there and see the country. Leaving KAF is like moving to another world. First, we cross about two kilometers of garbage. The field of garbage always has people shopping, as Mum would say. It's quite sad. There are a couple of apartment buildings that have half collapsed. When you get to the other side, you see that they don't have a back at all. Apparently, they were hit by 500-pound bombs some time ago. They're filled with people. The kids all run out to watch us drive by. Sometimes they wave and smile, but other times they swear at us and throw rocks. I still find it pretty shocking to see young children so full of hate at us being here. But others wave and smile and seem to want us around. It is hard to know who is right. I just have to believe that we are doing a good thing. Especially when I hear our intelligence updates about the widespread violence and I see the terrible poverty. I have seen about 100 men in our trips and easily double that in children, but no women so far. I don't think they realize that I am a woman when we drive by, which is fine by me. I can see why people dream about visiting here. It is stunningly beautiful in areas. I got to see the Red Desert to the south. It was amazing. I don't think any description or photo could do it justice. It wasn't flat, like the deserts in the movies. Instead, it was rolling in a blood red color. The sand was so fine, you couldn't even pick it up. It's been getting steadily hotter. It reaches about 35 Celsius in the afternoons, but drops down to about 5 degrees at night. My personal protective equipment weighs about 40 pounds, plus the weight of a rucksack. It's two-thirds of my body weight and I feel every pound of it. I've got to admit, the LCF look-cool factor is pretty good. I'll take lots of pictures. Hopefully the weeks continue to fly by. I trust that all is well on the home front. I miss you guys. Nick.
1: For Her Country is hosted by me, Shannon Busta. It is written and produced by me and Katrina Bolak, our music is by Whiskey Wolf and Oceanic Piano. A special thank you to Katherine Rusk and the Goddard family and the team at True Patriot Love for their support throughout this project. And thank you to our series sponsor, RBC, and our episode sponsor, OMERS. The letter shared in this episode is from the biography, Canada's Daughter, written by Sally Goddard. You can find it on Amazon. The letter was read by Anna Maximu. This project was produced with the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. True Patriot Love is Canada's leading organization that supports military members and their families. It administers the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, which was started by the Goddard family to support women in the military in honor of Nicola. To learn more about this podcast and the great work of this organization, please visit tplgoddardfund.com and consider donating if you can. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.